0: Let's say a blessing for studying Torah today. Blessed are you source of life who makes us holy with your mitzvot and has commanded us to engage in the words of Torah. A Betty, Betty's here with a brand new hip, hi Betty. That's wonderful. Uh, Amazing. It's practically outpatient surgery. It's incredible. Fantastic. Uh, So this week's portion is called Beha'alotcha, when you raise up the lights, which is a beautiful name for a portion, isn't it? And it is a very long Torah portion and a very eventful Torah portion. It begins with chapter 8, and goes all the way through chapter twelve, so it's 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 five full chapters, and again, extremely eventful. It's hard even to know where to start or stop with this portion, and it's one of my favorite portions uh, because it has so many compelling episodes in it. So we'll focus on a couple. I'm not o oh, I am not I have not planned overly for today because I have a couple of things I'd love to hear more of a discussion about and hear your thoughts about but let me give you an overview of what happens in this portion just so you get an idea so it starts with the instruction to Aaron to mount the lamps of the menorah that's um that's uh it seems a little out of context but there it is uh what's going on in this portion as a whole is after again, as we've discussed for weeks and weeks, they are still at Mount Sinai. They have received the Torah, they've organized their society, they've built their sanctuary there, they've, they've created the um, social order and the military order of their camp. They are, they are finally ready to go. And in this portion, they actually set out on their journey. That's, so, so the episodes that take place, The the key episodes are first a description in chapter nine of something called the second Passover, uh, which is that some, some, some Israelites come to Moses and they said, when we celebrated the Passover, the first Passover in the wilderness, we couldn't participate because we had either come in contact with a dead body or we were off on a journey we don't want to be left out of this Passover. What should we do? And because there's no precedent, it's never happened before, Moses says, stand by, I'll ask God. And God says, yes. If you didn't get to do the Passover on the first full moon of the year in Nisan, you get to do it on the second full moon of the year. And there's a beautiful um take on this. I just want to share one verse with you. I don't want to occupy ourselves with this episode, but let me find the verse and share it with you because I think it's really beautiful. Um, Chapter 9, verse 7. Here it is. Hold on a second. Uh, oh, I must have that wrong for a sec. Ah, here we go. Chapter nine, verse 10. And God spoke spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people, say, when anybody, whether you or your posterity, who is either defiled by a corpse or is on a long journey, would offer a pass sacrifice, you shall offer it in the second month on the 14th day instead of the first month and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter earth. Just like if you were doing it on Passover. But I wanna point out this word to you, Rechokah, you, you see the little dot up there where I'm pointing at, uh-huh. that, that little dot, is somebody unmute, is Somebody unmuted, it's good to mute yourself. Um, Rechokah means far away. It's translated here as a long journey. Um, but Rahok means far away and the scribes put a special mark there to say something, but we're not sure what. It appears in the Talmud that they debate how far away you have to be to qualify, right? To not be able to get to Jerusalem for Passover because here in the wilderness, there's no mention of Jerusalem, but later everyone it becomes a pilgrimage holiday. But all I wanted to share about this is that the spiritual interpretation of this dot is that far away can mean both physically or spiritually. Um, And I really liked that when I was studying the portion today that if you are spiritually removed, if you are lost and not able to be, not able to join in, you can do it again the next month. It's and why that speaks to me is that the Passover ritual is the essentially what's the word I'm looking for binding and bonding ritual of the Jewish people. You are saying, I'm in. Um, Rabbi Harold Kushner in his commentary says, this is like the wicked child who says, what does this mean to you? And the Haggadah says to you and not to me. And uh, so that child is far away from identifying with the slaves journeying forth to freedom. So I I really like that because as we prepare for our journey, which is what's going on here, they're going to leave very soon. And before they leave, they have the first Passover, right? It's the first month of the second year since leaving Egypt. One year has passed and they are going to enact together, ritually, for the first time, um, what was their lived experience the year before. And now when they actually, on that, uh, on the, oh, uh, Deborah says, when I performed in Fiddler on the Roof with many non-Jews, we did a Passover Seder to help the cast feel the Jewish connection. That's cool, Deborah. Yes, that's what makes us feel the Jewish connection. That's what that participating in this um, ritual is our statement of we are part of this journey. And so the first step in getting ready to leave is to have a ritual that says we're in, this is us. That's what I was trying to say. And what if we couldn't participate? No worries do it the next month. If you wanna in, you're in, right? I just thought that was beautiful. Okay, so then after the description of the second Passover, there's a description of the cloud, the fire cloud of the divine presence. Let's look at it. And the way I'm thinking about this portion is all the elements we need to practice in order to go on the journey towards the promised land. One is we have to vote with our feet and say, we're in, right? And then here's the next practice that we have to do. Let me share it with you. It's the next chapter, chapter, uh, No, it's not the next chapter, it's verse 15. There we go. On the day that the Mishkan was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the pact. And in the evening, it rested over the tabernacle in the likeness of fire until morning. So remember, this is the divine presence, a cloud protecting by day, a fire illuminating and warming by night that's so again if if we're hung up on uh, anthropomorphic images of the divine this is as this is as unanthropomorphic as you can imagine this is the metaphor of the divine presence as a protective cloud by day and as an illuminating fire by night It was always so. The cloud covered it, appearing as fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from the tent, the children of Israel would set out accordingly. And at the spot where the cloud settled, there the Israelites would make camp. At a command of Yehovah, the Israelites broke camp. And at command of Yehovah, they made camp. Okay, let's look at the Hebrew. Al p. Okay, p is mouth. Al p is at the word of, as it were. So command is a good, sure, it's a good, it's a good choice. But we could also give it something a little less. Um, w- w- this is a cloud, for goodness' sake. This isn't like now we have the now we have this image of something coming out of the mouth of life unfolding of yourvave he he. so it doesn't have to be a command and I was looking at the in Hebrew and thinking of a better way to translate that given the metaphors that predict precede it so um at the word of uh whatever al means out of the mouth of something nice like that that's not quite so uh so linear, um, but, and at, out of the mouth of yod they made camp, they remained encamped as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. When the cloud lingered for many days, the Israelites would not journey on. If it lingered for a few days, they would remain encamped until it would lift. If it just stayed one night, would break camp and lift in the morning day or night whenever the cloud lifted they would break camp whether it was two days or a month or a year however long the cloud lingered over the tabernacle the Israelites remained encamped and did not set out and only when it lifted did they break camp and again tabernacle we need a better word mishkan the cloud of divine presence is over its dwelling place. So it dwells there until it is ready to set out and journey. On a sign from Yod al Alpi Adonai, out of the mouth of Yod they would camp. Yisa'u, they would journey. At Mishmeret Adonai Shamaru, they would observe God's watches. pi Adonai de Moshe, okay, it out, uh, as, as directed through Moses. So we heard that phrase, Alpi Adonai, at least five times in that section. I, if Adonai is not a, a commanding general up on a throne, because there is no evidence of it in this portion, God is a, a cloud, or a fire. And I've talked about this before, but these are very compelling for me because a cloud is something you can perceive it there, but you can't you can't have it. Right? You can't grasp it. A fire it's it's there. We know fire, right? It burns or it warms, it lit, illuminates or it blinds. It's like and we need it. And it is our, and you can't have it, you know. So, Yodhe Vavhe in this instance really is has this image. Think of the clouds dying at the edges and reforming constantly. Think of flames lapping and then receding. Think, this is life unfolding, right? For me, this is I am becoming. It's all of it, and it's nothing that is fixed material or something that you could make into an object to worship. It's like, I love these metaphors. And yet Alpi coming from its utterances is something that we need to learn how to listen for. So for me, the, the Hebrew is, is much more and those metaphors are so much more fluid and um, Things we need to discern rather than commands from the mouth of, you know, is the cloud there? Is it not there? Is it moving? What, you know, it's a whole different, it's a whole different story. Um, Ruth says an amorphous metaphor and morph, right? Morph means form. Amorph is without form. Ruth says, this is so important a perspective. So often saying one feels cloudy or one feels foggy, it is said as derogatory, rather than understanding that it might be a message to stay still for a while. Mm, That's perfect, Ruth. If things are foggy or cloudy, it's not time to move, is it? Mm, Wait, wait for a wait. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Well said. And by the way, you know, Rabbi Tova Spitzer, when she met with us, she talked about the cloud and the fire because the cloud can also be a source of disorientation, darkness, um, uh, unknowing, you know, or it can be a sign of protection and shade and rain. It's like, it's another beautiful thing about this as a metaphor is that It's not just benign or just bad. Naomi says, I had a spiritual teacher who said, confusion is an exalted state. If we can be with it, that's right. And Blaise says, great, it is a protection for the self that needs rest or inaction. This is where I wanted to go with you all. I really want your input today. And Abigail said, they're always changing. You probably did this as a child, and now I do it once in every long while. I would lie on the ground and watch the clouds, and I'd see things in them, and I... Amazing to think about. Ellen Weaver says, the Anan Hakavod is not the dark, cloudy stuff. Now, the cloud of glory, Anan Hakavod as it's known, on the one hand, Rabbi Ellen, on the other hand, when the people see the cloud of glory on the Mount Sinai, they're afraid of it and only Moses walks into it. You know, So even the div- cloud of divine glory bears some terror of thunder and lightning in it. Um, uh, I was thinking about that, oh, that was Ellen Weaver. Yeah, so Ellen, that's what I was thinking about that. Um, it's not just glory; it, it's it's the yeah it's it's, it's the infinite uh, power of uh, that we also can perceive in clouds. So I mean, it's the same with fire and water for me, both in metaphor and in reality. It, I need fire in my house to keep me warm, but if I don't know how to uh, uh, channel it then it burns my house down and I need water in my house. But if I don't know how to channel it, it ruins my house. You know, it's like we have to be responsible channels of the uh, life energy. But Ellen's personal experiences have been glorious. Yes, and I'm, gr- I'm glad for that, so are mine. Um, okay, in just a moment. There we go. Great. Okay. So what I want us to think about, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down and still somehow, it's cloud illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. Wow. Good. Um, it's one of the first songs I learned on my guitar when I was a kid so so we have with this instead of at the command of God oh the cloud lifted let's go and now that we've sort of softened up the edges of this then we understand in a different way, what the spiritual training, the children of Israel need to undergo in order to journey to the promised land. They have to practice and develop the ability to discern where, what, where they are being led, what's calling to them. And so this word discernment seems very important to me in this context. The children of Israel now have to imagine them as former slaves, their lives were circumscribed by the commands and demands of the taskmasters, right? It's like how, how we were trained going to school. We weren't trained to be spiritually attuned I wasn't, I was trained to obey. They were, I got rewarded if I was good and I got punished if I was bad and, and, and. And of course, I mean, we can critique school, (laughs) the school model in training us to be good cogs in the industrial machine, right? Um, uh, But I don't have to go that far necessarily but if you picture the slaves, yes, that's all they were being, their individuality was actively suppressed and punished. And their function, their functionality, their utility as pyramid builders was what they knew. They didn't have individual identities as far as Pharaoh was concerned. They were cannon fodder and they were uh, cogs in his building machines. And here they are, they're free. How are they gonna, how the hell are they gonna build a new society? Get to this promised land, accept this Torah, treat each other the way they'd wanna be treated. They have no training in that. So, Oh, right, Cynthia says, and the opposite of being cannon fodder is our teaching last week about each head being counted so that everyone's individuality is recognized. And of course, a good functioning society, everyone has to agree on a social compact. That's what I mean about Passover. But within that compact now, they can't be a free and self-regulating people unless they learn how to discern where life is calling them. And that's how I see the cloud and the fire. And as as, um, Ruth was saying, if it's cloudy and it's time to just wait, then you have to learn patience. You have to learn faith. You have to learn, trust. If the cloud lifts and it's time to go, you have to learn to get up and go. You have to learn, it's time to move and go. You have to be brave. You have to be trusting and all the time, you have to be tuned in to life unfolding. That's your Where am I being guided now? Uh Salman uh liked to say, um, uh, Hashem, how do you want to deploy me today? Because the military language also goes through this portion. They are they are in 12 camps, they have banners, they respond to martial trumpet calls you know so so that's good too there's a cloud but there's also this sense of of command good uh how do you want to deploy me today i love that question so that's what is going on in my opinion with with the cloud and the fire i think of it as part of the spiritual boot camp of transforming ourselves From individuals who haven't learned, who were never trained how to do this. Yes, Naomi, like a sense of purpose—that's beautiful. The Torah is our, you know, marching orders. That's right. Get your marching orders, but you can do sense them internally. And of course, the answer is never going to be all the. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? We live in that. Constant, beautiful, creative problem of balancing self and community. It's all good. Uh, And Rob says, control, freedom, composition, improvisation, rules, no rules, paradox. Exactly. Um, And we've talked about this before. Really gifted musicians who've done all their practicing, they master the composition and then they riff on it. Right. And so we want to be so that good with life. We'll never be that, but it's okay. You just get better and better. You just keep practicing. And it requires your consistent presence and attention, willingness to learn, willingness to ask forgiveness, willingness to try again, all of that. For me, that's the whole story here of how we're going to get ready how we're gonna train ourselves for this so-called promised land, this metaphorical destination, which we can sense how good it could be. And Rabbi Ellen says, the netzach, endurance of study practice work and the hod, the glory of performance mastery, being able to, well said, Rabbi Ellen. These netzach and hod, are balancing um, uh, you zero balancing. I know, zero. I'm not the you same, not oh boy! <laughs> Someone's got a kid there. So yes, this is the balance that is expressed in Kabbalah. Beautiful, everyone. These comments are marvelous. Okay, so now let's go on to the next task that require that we have to practice. And um, well, there's a, there's a section about the silver trumpet. Oh, let's see, I have more comments We from Joan. We create based on history and experience. Artists do create new, but with the colors they find in nature. Thank you, John. Thank you. So then in chapter 10, it describes the trumpets called these are silver-hammered trumpets that are we find in the Torah, as well as shofars, ram's horns. They both seem to have been instruments used to call people to attention. Here, let's look at it for a minute. And Yehovah spoke to Moses, saying, "Have two silver trumpets made." Make them of hammered work. They shall serve you to summon the military bodies of the community. Now, our translator chose to do this. I understand why, but it doesn't say that in the Hebrew. To summon the community and to set the divisions in motion, the camps in motion. So I understand we don't have to read this in a martial sense necessarily. When both are blown in long blasts, the whole community shall assemble before you at the tent of meeting. If only one is blown, the chieftains shall assemble before you. And the word, tekiya. it's a word we know, yitka'u, tak'u, tekiah. The long blast. But if you, takatem true ah, remember what true ah is? Da, 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 the short blast. One of the things I love about this is that this has been, we've been doing this for so long and we're still using the same calls. It's so beautiful. But if it's short blast, then the divisions on the east shall move forward. And the second short blast, those encamped on the south etc. If you want to Ha at kaha if you want to invoke the entire community, you shall blow long blasts, not short ones. and that trumpets shall be blown by Aaron's sons. When you are at war, you shall sound the sword blasts. but on your joyous occasions, You shall sound the long blasts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I just wanted to share that with you. It's like, I I really like that. So they're getting ready to to hear the, and then it says in the second year, on the 20th day of the second month, which means after the second Passover, remember the Passover we described earlier for those who missed it in the first month? Look what happened the cloud lifted from the tabernacle of the pact and the Israelites set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai, the cloud came to rest in the wilderness of Paran. Oh, Naomi said, I love the senses of pomp with the get up and go, truly a movement with organization and for a higher purpose. You're not repeating yourself, it's really, Good that you're sharing your thoughts in this way. Yes, there's something very. Um, we're organized. We're ready. We did it. Time to move on. It's a beautiful moment. And the gravitas. Thank you, Naomi. By al pi Adonai Moshe, when the march was to begin out of the mouth of Judah have be Moshe in the hand of Moses that's the literal meaning of those words mouth and hand and here we go the first degel the first flag standard to set out troop by troop was a division of Judah and in command of its troops was Nachshon son of Aminagav. so because Nachshon is the leader of the for the the front the forward guard. Uh, that's why Nachshon gets singled out in the Midrash as the one who went into the Red Sea first, if you recall that uh, Midrash. And by the way, tomorrow night, uh, Nathan and Laurie's son Matt and his lovely wife Gabby have a young um, little boy named Nachshon. They named him Nachshon because of this story. And we're going to officially give him his name at services tomorrow night so I thought what once again the timing is in God's hands you know that little Nachshon is coming they happen to be in from Miami and they happen to be here on the Shabbat when Nachshon leads the people on their journey I think that's just beautiful and then it lists all of the all of the troops all 12 and then the holy, the Levites carrying their holy stuff, and so the whole stately procession. I'm going to skip this part. And they marched from the mountain of Yodhevave a distance of three days. The Ark of the Covenant of Yodhevave traveled in front of them on that three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And Yodhevave's cloud kept above them by day. As they moved on from camp. And then a passage that many of us know. By bin Soa Haaron, by Yomer Moshe. By Yehi bin Soa Haaron, by Yomer Moshe. Kuma Adonai, via Futsu and the rest of the Torah service, Kimitsion, is taken from another, from the book of Isaiah. So this is the declaration. When the ark was to set out, Moses would say, Advance, O Yodhei may your enemies be scattered and may your foes flee before you. And that passage comes into our prayer book as what we say whenever we open the Ark, to take out the Torah. And whenever we put away the Ark, we say, And then more verses. Um, so when it halted, Ah, Cynthia said, why is there a line after Kuma? This is, um, Oh, I forget what it's called. It's part of the cantillation and grammatical um, um, notation of Torah. I I don't remember what it's for. I ignore them all, Cynthia. Oh, it's a pause. When chanting, you're supposed to pause a breath. Oh, I didn't know that, Rabbi Ellen. Just a brief thing. So. um, Oh, uh so I don't know. Just... Oh, Cynthia, now we know. Thank you, Rabbi Ellen. You're supposed to breathe there. Just, yeah. So it's a little pause. And the upside down nuns, it said that these two verses are its own, their own book. Right, this upside down nun, we taught about this another year. Uh, it's not really a nun, it actually comes from, the, from Greek. And it, there was a whole fascinating journey we took on this. But these upside down nuns appear in the Torah and mean that this section is distinguished from the, what comes before and what comes after. And in the Mishnah, they say that, that this, these two are set off because this makes a book in and of itself, which means that the book of numbers is actually three books. And what they're after then is that instead of five books of Moses, there are seven books of Moses. Which aligns with the Book of Proverbs, where it says there are seven pillars of wisdom. Okay, let that drift off. I don't want to get stuck, crazy, stuck on that. But anyway, and so they the ark sets off. It is there's a lot of pomp here, and order, and beautiful, um, just be- beautiful sense of 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 uh, share of, of moving in harmony. But of course, because the Torah is about us, the very next line, the people took to complaining bitterly before Yod And Yod heard and was incensed, and a fire of Yod broke out against them, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. And the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Yod and the fire. Tishka died down. So they named that place Tabera because a fire, a fire had broken out. And so how long does the orderliness last? It would appear almost none. So no time. And it reminds me of, I don't know, our body politic say in this country, Do you give the new elected leaders a honeymoon? Nah, we'll give them three days. Then we'll start complaining again, right? It's like, it's so hard to move forward with common purpose. Oh my goodness. And especially again, remember the mentality of the slave. So, here we go. One of the best words in the Torah, ha'asafsuf. The riffraff in their midst felt a gluttonous craving. Heat avu ta'ava. You could also translate it as craved a craving. Okay, think about this. I'm going to try to articulate this. If when we are in our, as it were, our limited consciousness, we are attacked where we're not driven by a sense of purpose, a goal, a vision, a sense that we have a reason to um, both um, delay gratification and to tamp down selfish impulses for a greater good? If we don't have that, and why would the slaves have that capability? Why would they have been trained in any way to delay gratification if they were finally free? Why wouldn't they gluttonously crave, right? Um, uh, If we're in that small consciousness then we are driven by our cravings. In fact, we think that craving itself is the reason, is what gives life purpose. And what I mean by that is that we are completely attached to outside stimuli. Um, We think that the purpose of life is to be happy when our team wins, sad when our team loses, get revenge, go it's like, Life is all about emotions. It's all about hunger. It's all about lust. It's just, what else is there? That's our Yetzir that's our undeveloped self. And so this is where they're at. They crave a craving. They don't even know, They've, they're right back in it. And they say, oh, they start crying. And they say, if only we had meat to eat. And in one of the best lines in the Torah, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic. (sighs) And Naomi has the right question. I find this interesting because as slaves, did we even get meat? It's like a yearning or expectation for something we thought would come with liberation heaven being a consciousness, not a destination. Thank you. Now our gullets are shriveled. There's nothing at all, nothing but this manna to look to. Now the manna was like coriander seed and in color like beryllium. And the people would go about and gather it, grind it between millstones or pound it in a mortar, boil it in a pot and make it into cakes and it tasted like rich cream. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall upon. it. We've talked about this before, but I consider manna to be the next test. They have to learn how to follow the cloud, how to discern as a common body where to go, and now they have to learn not to hoard or live, uh, live um, they have to learn, ra- it's another practice of radical trust. If you recall from the book of Exodus where there's the long description of the manna, anyone who took more than they needed, when they, the following morning, the manna would be um, rotting. its basket anyone who took less than they needed would have enough it's magic food they don't even know what it is if you recall it's called man because man means what is it that's its name what is this stuff and so manna and and then in Deuteronomy God will say I tested them with the manna to see whether they would be able to follow their follow what was in their hearts so that they could follow my commands so i'm seeing manna in addition to following the cloud as another set of preparations te- not preparation practice practice both trusting that you'll have enough day to day so that you don't hoard but also, and this is a hard practice uh, because garlic, onions and cucumbers are great. You know, um, So what, what am I trying to articulate here? Uh, um, that you can do without, I would say again, delay gratification trust that there'll be enough Uh, surrender to the simplicity. Yes, this is the Zen of the desert to be with the mystery, the cloudiness and the uncertainty says Joan. And then Naomi says, surrender to the simplicity. And Joan says, yes, simple. (sighs) Certainly this is what monastic and um, Uh, traditions do they keep it uh, they keep it simple Um, I'm going to keep eating my ice cream but I don't want to live for ice cream because we are blessed with abundance at this point still But that abundance, that satisfying our stomach in that way, that's not what's going to lead to a good society. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy it. Also, manna sounds delicious, says Deborah. Maybe we can enjoy what we get instead of craving what is not there. Well said. I'm appreciating all the input today because this I've been, you know, I have these half-formed thoughts, and then you guys really help. Good, good. Naomi says, also as a society, used to the activation of being slaves, shifting that to needing of wanting and these pleasures of food. Wait, I didn't quite understand that Naomi. Like, um they're so used to their nervous systems being activated and in that mode that then it was like shifted to just all these wants and desires because things were simple. Everything was provided for, they had clear boundaries. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have to learn. um, And they lived in that activated state, you know, uh, where they were, they, their lives were determined almost by outside uh, forces, and they were re, they they all they could do was was react and survive and keep their heads down. And exactly. now something else is being asked of them uh, to give them spiritual freedom. Exactly. And a more peaceful, potentially a more peaceful kind of mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, people are writing wonderful things in here. Let's see. Vicky asked, how many times has Mana mentioned the Torah? Um, it's mentioned about three times, uh, but you can read about an Exodus, I believe, chapter 16. We'll check. And Blaze says In 2006, I designed a silent solo retreat for myself. I arranged to have all the food I would need for 30 days, but ran out of coffee. The woman who owned the house I was staying in would have brought me coffee had I left her a note requesting it but I decided that I would make do with what I had and go without coffee for the last few days. It was a memorable decision. And thanks to this class, I am now remembering it. That's like a journey in the wilderness Blaze. That's beautiful. Rob Saffer says, with choice comes responsibility. With abundance comes humility. Thank you. W- all wise words here. So what happens next is the people are weeping in their tents. They're like, they're babies. I mean, they're babies. And uh, Moses, says, I can't do this anymore. There's that famous line where he says, take me out and shoot me, God. This is it. And um, God says, look, I'll help you. Get 70 elders, take them out of the camp, and I will have the spirit of, that is upon you um, emanate to the others, so that you won't be the only one through whom, through whom speaks to the people. This is big. Talk about preparing for a society that can function. If the voice, if if the the, the divine P, the divine voice, only comes through Moses's hand, how is it ever going to work? And so the seventy elders. Go out of the camp. Here, let's look at that passage. This will be the last one we see today. Chapter, we're in chapter 11. Okay. He gathered 70 of the people's elders and stationed them around the tent. Yehovah came down in a cloud, and speaking to him, Yehovah drew upon the spirit that was on Moses and put it upon the seventy participating elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they spoke in ecstasy, but did not continue. Velo yasafu could—it's ambiguous. Velo um, yasafu uh, could mean, and they did not stop. So it's not clear what this line means. And two of the participants, one named Eldad and the other Medad, they had remained in camp. They hadn't gone to the tent, yet the spirit also rested on them. They were among those recorded, but they had not gone out to the tent. And they spoke in ecstasy in the camp. And an assistant ran out to Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are acting the prophet in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses's attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, "My Lord Moses, you must stop them." And Moses, in this most famous line, says, "Moses." But Moses said to him, "Are you angry on my account? Would that all of Yehovah's people were prophets, and that Yehovah would put the divine spirit upon all of them." I love this passage. First of all, I always read it as a line about about Moses's character. He never asked for this job. He's doing it because he was called to do it. He doesn't think he's anybody special. I love Moses. And again, how are we going to make it forward unless the divine spirit somehow is recognized within each individual and each individual does the inner work. Not everybody's gonna do it, but if we can imagine what it'd be like if every single one of us was committed to learning this discernment, this self limitation, this trust, this appreciation, but also that each of us counts that we have something to say, that we deserve to be inspired, that we can contribute. Like all of this, Parsha for me is a recipe for self-realization um, in the context of a community. Coming from a place where that was denied us, where the rule of law was denied us, And where self actualization was denied. And now we're moving forward through the wilderness, both to manifest a society of fairness, but also a society where each individual truly recognizes that they are also made in the divine image. Um, And so that's how I read this portion today. And the journey through the wilderness, uh, as a as a as a proving ground, as the place as where we're all walking together all the time on our way to to a, a promised a promised possibility, a promised future that we can that we can intuit. And uh, Vicky says it was so wonderful meeting so many WJC members that I've seen on Zoom in person this weekend. I'm with you, Vicki, wasn't that fantastic? And Joan says, it's so strange, the contrast with the death of Aaron's sons due to sacrificing without being commanded, strange fire. And you know, Joan, I don't see it as strange because if if we are not discerning, we can become self aggrandizing, which is, you know, you can say what happens to Nadavav an and Abihu. Well, they're Aaron's sons. They're special. And so they take upon themselves and arrogate to themselves that which they should not. Because humility, a sense, here's another of those beautiful paradoxes. We have to, on the one hand, know that we're very special, and the other hand, know that we're not so special. This is all it's filled with these kind of paradoxes, right? And you can you can tell me, but I think the word "strange," you know, I didn't, I, I got it from how we always talk about strange fire that that Aaron's sons uh, bring, right? So that's a translation. You're much better at telling me this about. Uh, yes, it's usually translated "strange," uh, but it's also it's aishazar, which can mean strange or foreign or unauthorized, uh, so it can have a lot of meanings. And does it relate to Gare, the stranger? No. All right. So it... it, it... But what is a future conversation? It's good stuff. Mm -hmm. And Deborah says, keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Thank you, everybody. Yes. And Naomi is reminding us of the famous Hasidic saying that every person should have a note in each pocket. One that says, I am dust and ashes. The other says, for me, the world was created. And that wisdom lies in knowing when to read which note. When we need to know that there's nobody here but me to do this. And when we need to read the note says, I'm not that important. And have both notes. So beautiful. Thank you, everyone.